Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good morning, Crosspoint. So glad to see you. Well, I can't see you, but you can see me. So, it's so good to be with you this morning, and for those of you who are just joining us uh, online for the first time, we welcome you. I'm so glad you're with us today. Hey, we are uh, continuing a teaching series, and uh, we are going through uh, the book of Amos, and uh, this series, of course, is called Check Engine. Uh, Just a bit of backstory about Amos. Amos, if you do not know, was a shepherd who lived during the time of what was called the Divided Kingdom. In Israel, so the kingdom was split essentially into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And of course, Amos lived in the south in Tekoa, uh, but he was sent by the Lord to prophesy to Israel in the north. And so Amos obeyed. And so he went straight up to Bethel, which was the religious center uh, of all Israel. And then he warned them of God's coming judgment to the nation. And he told them that the, the Lord was graciously giving them just one more chance to turn things around, to repent. Uh, and to turn to the Lord uh, for his favor. So today we're going to continue in the series, and we're doing a deep dive into one of the biggest reasons for uh, God's judgment on Israel. So if you have a Bible handy, I hope you'll turn with me uh, to Amos chapter 4. Now that's in the Old Testament. Uh, You've got to get into the prophets, you've got to get through the four major prophets, and then you'll find your way into Amos uh, shortly thereafter in the minor prophets. I want to warn you in advance that Amos is, is not going to be pulling any punches here. He has come to Israel. He is loaded for bear. Uh, and in the text we read today, you're going to find out that he's very, very direct. Some of you, if you're a good Canadian, you might even say that he's a little bit rude in what he says to the nation of Israel. Uh, but here's the thing, is, is that sometimes, in order to get people's attention... Sometimes you need to shake things up a little bit. And let me tell you, Amos shakes things up this morning. So we're going to go to Amos chapter 4 and verse 1. We're just going to start reading. Here we go. Amos chapter 4 and verse 1 says this. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. All right, let me give you a bit of a background here uh, for this first verse. <clears throat> Bashan, it was this fertile plain. It was on the other side of the Jordan. Uh, it was well known for its lush pasture land and for its rather robust cattle. So in other words, the cattle there, because it was very grassy, they were very well fed and they were horizontally challenged, as it were. Uh, so the imagery here is these big, bloated, gassy beasts. Now, in some cultures, it's actually a compliment to call a woman a cow, okay? Once when I was in Uganda, my driver turned to me and he said that he had a 10-cow daughter. And what he meant by that was that if he ever wanted to marry his daughter, it would cost you 10 cows, okay? So he was saying his daughter was pretty beautiful. Now, uh, that was a compliment in his culture, but I think if you know something about Canadian culture and you know something about the English language, you probably know that calling a woman a cow in our context isn't a very good thing to do. Guys, if you're single, take notes, okay? This is not a good opening line uh, for a, a young woman. Hey there, you're a good-looking little heifer. Okay, don't use that, okay? Bad idea. Now, in this context, Amos wasn't paying them a compliment 
either, okay? There, there's no Canadian niceness here. He's got his gloves off. He's circling the ice, and he's ready to go toe-to-toe with the lead women in the city of Samaria. Okay, so the point he's making is essentially this, is that they are utterly self-centered, all right? They're like big cows. They trample on everything. They, they just got in their way. They were spoiled. They were entitled. They were demanding, okay? They were living the high life, but they're living the high life on the backs of the poor. So essentially, uh, they were, there, was, there was social injustice going on here. They were exploiting the poor in order for them to become richer and richer and richer, But the cow imagery actually doesn't stop there, okay? There's much more in the undercurrent of the cow imagery here. And I'm not going to talk about it right now, but I want you to pay attention as we walk through the message uh, because we're going to begin to roll that out a little bit later. But let's keep reading in the text. Verse 2. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Okay, so Amos is returning. It's it's a refrain that he's often been using as he's going back to giving them this, this gracious warning to Israel. And he's saying, listen, the Lord is trying to get your attention here. And he's trying to get you to return back to him before it's too late. And, and you'll notice that here, it, it, the Lord doesn't judge them according to their cultural values. He doesn't judge them according to their personal preferences. What does it say? It says that he judges them according to his holiness. So God's judgment, it's, it's not based on, on what we think or what we believe or what most people commonly believe. There's, there's, no, there's no vote that's taking place here. God's judgment on us always is based on his perfect character his perfect nature, his perfect goodness and holiness. And it's on that basis that Israel has again and again repeatedly failed to live up to the requirements of the covenant. Now, one thing to keep in mind here, uh, and you'll read this as you you walk through the book of Amos, is is that this was actually a time of prosperity for Israel. The economy was booming. I mean, the borders were safe. uh, the, The cities were well protected. And so many people would have just assumed, well, you know, everything's going great here, right? So God must be blessing us. What could possibly go wrong? Why would God possibly be angry with us? But here's what Amos warned them of. He warned them this. He said, your walls will not protect you. And he explains this kind of graphically. He says, the people would be taken away with hooks, dragged through the breaches of the wall. Well, what's that all about? Well, the imagery, if you think about it, if you've ever been to a butcher's shop and you've gone in and you've seen big racks of meat hanging from hooks in the ceiling. That kind of gives you a bit of an image of what he's talking about here. The city essentially would become a slaughterhouse and they would be dragged off to market. Now, this, this judgment ultimately, you'll find this in, in several parts in, in Amos, and is, well, this judgment would eventually come about because of the Assyrian army. The Assyrians were this world power that lived north of Israel. They lived very close to the northern border. And 40 years after the time of Amos, history actually plays it out, 42 years after this prophecy takes place, the Assyrians would come in, they would conquer Samaria, and they ultimately would deport most of its people, fulfilling this prophecy. Well, anyway, let's, let's keep reading. Verse 4. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal, and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, of that which is leavened, and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. 
So what's Amos doing here? Amos is essentially he's taunting them. And he, he parodies a worship service. It's, it's as if he's the worship leader. And he's inviting everybody to stand and to come to worship. But this call to worship, it's dripping with uh, irony. It's steeped in sarcasm. And just as an aside, he mentions Gilgal in the text here. So Bethel was the center of religious worship at that time. Gilgal would have been one of the shrines uh, where other hot places of high worship would have taken place in that day. So it was essentially like a, a popular religious destination in that day. Well, at face value, uh, these people, these people seem very religious. They seem to be bent on doing the right things. And they actually felt pretty good about their efforts. I mean, they were, it says they were proud of their religiosity. So maybe you know, imagine them taking selfies by the, altar, by the altar, right? And posting some humble brags about their church worship and their church attendance. You know, hashtag blessed. This was the kind of people that they were. But, but, there was one problem. This wasn't a call to worship. It was a call to sin. He says, go to Bethel and what? And transgress. Go to Gilgal and multiply your transgressions. So what he's saying is, listen, there is something really wrong. There is something really rotten at the center of your worship. <clears throat> and so the question for us today is, okay, well, what's going on here? What was wrong? What was the problem? Well, to answer that question, we need to quickly review a bit of the backstory on what's happening in Bethel. And we talked about this in our first week together. So remember, Israel was divided into two nations. Uh, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And this breakup kind of took a place about 150 years prior to the time of Amos. So I want to back up the timeline 150 years to the uh, time uh, when that split took place. So King Solomon's reign after that, the nation was divided into two places. Uh, Jeroboam. Uh, sorry, Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son, became the ruler of Judah in the south. And Jeroboam, who was one of Solomon's servants, uh, became the rebellious king in the north. So after the rebellion, uh, Jeroboam, when he's ruling in the north, he's kind of concerned because he's realizing, well, my people are going to keep going back down to the south because what's in the south? Jerusalem's in the south, and Jerusalem is the center of worship. And you've got to think about this, okay? So, so the entire calendar year of Israel centered around worship in Jerusalem, all of their pilgrimage, all their festivals, all their sacrifices. Everybody went to Jerusalem for this to happen. You didn't go on a summer vacation. You went to festival in Jerusalem. So if his people keep going from the north down to the south, eventually they're going to say, why are we fighting? Why don't we just reunite the nation? Jeroboam doesn't want that to happen. So he's got to come up with a solution. What do I do with the problem of worship in Jerusalem? Well, here's where we pick up the text. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28. Here's what it says. After seeking advice, and Jeroboam, he's constantly getting bad advice from people. Okay, after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. And he said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. So, so Jeroboam set up two golden calves for them to worship. Two baby cows. Think about that, okay? Which makes you wonder. I mean, why did he choose golden calves? Why didn't he choose like golden sheep or, or lions or dragons? I mean, imagine dragons, right? So, and, and notice what he said. He says, here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I mean, think about how blasphemous a thing that was to say, right? He was essentially writing Yahweh, the Lord, out of his script, 
right? And replacing him instead with two golden calves, which was absolutely ridiculous, right? It'd be like me saying to my, uh, telling my kids, hey, the neighbor's hamster, by the way, he invented the internet, right? Or it'd be like saying, hey, that stapler on your desk, that's what painted the Sistine Chapel. It's absolutely ridiculous to consider that two handcrafted golden calves rescued Israel from Egypt. Now, it also says in the text, you notice that he set up two major centers of worship. One was in Bethel and one was in Dan. Now, Bethel just geographically was actually at the center of Israel, but Dan was a whole lot further to the north on the border. It was kind of out in the sticks, out in the boonies. So it's not hard to imagine that Bethel would eventually become the center of worship for the entire nation. But But then it says in this, in 1 Kings 12, it says that he actually didn't stop there. It says he built other shrines. He built other places of worship. Uh, He actually set up his own priesthood. He actually set up an entire religious system of festivals and sacrifices, which perfectly mirrored everything that was happening in Jerusalem in the south. So note this, the order of worship was the same, but the object of their worship was different. And because of that, the outcome of their worship was not the same. Because what did God think about all of this? Well, it says this in verse 30. It says, and this thing became a sin. And you got to imagine, I mean, this actually continued on and on and on for 150 years, right up to the time of Amos. And, and this is part of the reason why, one of the major reasons why, that Amos marched up to Bethel and taunted the cows of Bashan. And he called them out and he says, hey, go to Bethel and transgress. Go to Gilgal and multiply your transgressions. Now, I realize we still haven't answered the question. Why did Jeroboam choose calves? Right? Why not any other animal? Well, this is where it gets really, really interesting. We need to turn the clock back even further. Okay? So we jumped back from the time of Amos to the time of Jeroboam and the first kings, the divided king. And we're going to roll the clock all the way back to the time of the Exodus. Now, the Exodus, of course, if, if you know your Bible stories, is the time where God rescued Israel from Egypt. After he rescued them from, uh, from Egypt, they, of course, went through the Red Sea. And then they found their way eventually to the foot of Mount Sinai. And when they got to the Mount Sinai, so Moses went up onto the sacred mountain to meet with the Lord. And the Lord, of course, gave Moses the law. But while Moses was up on the mountain, okay, uh, it, it actually took a little, a little bit of time for God to give him the law. And uh, the people grew impatient. And so what did the people do while they were waiting for Moses to come back from the mountain? They said to Aaron, who was the high priest, they says, make us gods who shall go before us. So Aaron, of course, he gathers up everybody's earrings and golden trinkets and navel rings and nose piercings and all that, puts them in a great big pile, melts them down, okay? And let's pick up the text at Exodus 32. Here's what it says. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw all this, he built an altar in front of the calf and he announced, tomorrow there'll be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Let me ask you a question. Does any of this sound familiar? Jeroboam's sin was essentially a rerun 
of Aaron's sin. I, I just want to put those two verses up on the screen side by side so you can see exactly how mirror images they are. One of them, shape of a calf. These are your gods. Israel brought you out of Egypt. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Jeroboam was essentially repeating the sin of Aaron, but he was actually doubling down on it. I mean, if one calf isn't enough, why don't I make two calves here? Now, the question is, where did Aaron's idea of the golden calf actually come from? Well, likely, most scholars would agree, is that Aaron was importing the idolatry up from Egypt. Because before the Exodus, the Israelites worshipped the Egyptian gods, their false gods. And the image of a cow was, was a very common um, symbol within Egyptian idolatry. So there were a number of these gods who used the cow or a calf as their symbol. So that's where he got it from. But the Lord had rescued Israel from Egypt. The Lord had beaten down its false, God, false gods. This is what the plagues were demonstrating. God's superiority, the Lord's superiority over the false gods of Egypt. And now Israel had gotten out of Egypt. God had set them free. He's creating a new covenant with them. And suddenly Israel is turning his back on God and turning back to these false gods. And not, not only that, but they're giving these false gods the credit for what the Lord had done for Israel. So what was wrong in Bethel? The same thing that was wrong at Sinai. Israel was deep in idolatry, and the Lord was coming to contend with their sacred cows. Now, by this time in the message, you may be asking the question, what does this have to do with me? After all, I'm, I'm not an idolater. I don't worship idols. I don't find any trinkets in my living room drawer. Or... And that's because oftentimes when we think of idols, our minds immediately go to figurines or to statues or to pagan temples. You know, a couple of years ago, I, I went with our, uh, our Crosspoint team uh, to Thailand on a, on a mission trip. And one of the things we noticed when we were in Thailand is that there were idols everywhere. I mean, they were in places of businesses, they were in people's yards, they were in the temples. And this actually isn't something unique to Thailand. There are many, many places throughout the world uh, that are polytheistic. In other words, they worship many gods, and you'll find different shrines in people's homes and in places of business. And I've been to a lot of other nations where I found this to be true. So, so it's easy to think of idolatry as something that only happens in other parts of the world, right? Because we don't see a lot of shrines, we don't see a lot of altars in our daily lives. And we might also be led to think that we in the West are somehow above all of that. So we're too educated, we're, we're scientifically sophisticated, right? We don't have this primitive or superstitious types of practices. You know, this is the way we might think. But, but the truth is this, is the truth is that everybody worships something or someone, See, that's the thing about being human. As humans, we were made to worship. We are incurably religious creatures. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes says that God has actually set eternity in our hearts. So it's like we were designed with these God-sized God holes in our hearts. And, and we're always seeking to fill them with something. So everybody worships something or someone. And the thing about idolatry is idolatry doesn't actually require uh, little idols of wood or stone. Any created thing can become an idol. Let me just read to you from Martin Luther's larger catechism. Here's what he says. He says, Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. So whenever you worship 
any created thing. The Bible teaches this. It's very explicit about this. Whenever you worship any created thing more than the creator, that ultimately becomes an idol. So an idol is essentially someone or something that becomes more important to you than God. It's something that absorbs your, your loyalty or your imagination more than God. It's this thing that you seek after and, give, uh, and gives you only what God himself was supposed to give. You seek this thing for your sense of meaning and worth and value in your life. And one thing scripture is very clear about is that idolatry is more than a physical act with physical objects. We, we see this in the, in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet, uh, who was prophesying during this time of the divided kingdom. Uh, here's what he says, Ezekiel 14, verse 2 to 3. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? So, so the place of idolatry is not out there in the temple or out there in the shrine. In fact, the place of idolatry is often in here, in the interior person, inside of our hearts. You know, if you're wondering, you know, well, um, what are some examples of this? I think Timothy Keller does a great job in his book, Counterfeit God's book I would recommend. If you haven't read it, recommend that you do read it. Um, but here's how he talks about how anything can actually be an idol. I want to read from Timothy Keller. He says, an idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources, on it without a second thought. It can be family and children, or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Anything can become an idol. And an idol doesn't have to be a bad thing, like a controlling substance or a bad habit. A good thing can be an idol. And when a good thing becomes a God thing, ultimately it becomes a bad thing. Anything can be an idol. And we were made to worship. So what's the problem with idolatry? Well, I just want to spend a few moments pointing out three problems with idolatry. And, and these problems recur and are repeated again and again throughout Scripture. And I want to talk about these because eventually they're going to point us back to Amos. Here's the first problem with idolatry. Number one, idols separate us from God. See, idolatry is so important that it actually made God's top 10 list. It's actually in the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. So let's look quickly at what God says about idolatry. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So, so God is a jealous God. God will not have rivals for his affection. Now, oftentimes when we think about jealousy, we think about jealousy in the negative sense. But there is actually a positive version of jealousy as well. So one of the metaphors that's used in the Old Testament to describe God's relationship with Israel is the metaphor of marriage. God is the bridegroom. Israel is the bride. 
And this, this very same metaphor is actually used in the New Testament to talk about the relationship between Christ and his church. In a marriage, if one partner is unfaithful, the other partner has full rights to be jealous. I mean, and this isn't like a petty, controlling, stalking kind of jealousy. This is a jealousy that is rooted in truth. It's rooted in faithfulness. It's rooted in love and goodness. It is covenantal love jealousy. God has every right to be jealous for our affection and our love. So he doesn't want us sleeping around on him, as it were. He doesn't want us flirting with other girls at the bar. God wants our full love and affection greater than all the other things that are in our lives. So how does God feel about idols? God hates them. There's, there's no other way to say it. There's no stronger way to say it. There's no weaker way to say it. The best way to say it is that God hates idols. So idolatry isn't just a bad idea. Idolatry isn't just an unhealthy life choice. I mean, if you read Romans 1, you discover that idolatry is actually the root sin beneath all other sins. So it leads to a whole other host of relational malfunctions and brokenness. And ultimately, sin separates us from God. Sin disrupts our communion with God. So idols in our lives ultimately separate us from God. But there's another problem with idolatry, and it's this, is that idols transform us. Uh, J.K. Beale wrote this groundbreaking book called We Become What We Worship. And, and it's a biblical theology of idolatry. It walks through the Bible from cover to cover. Listen, another, another great read. I, I highly recommend it. I mean, it's deep into scriptures, deep into theology. But man, I just blew through it this past week. Amazing. But here's what he says about idols and the effect that, that they have on our lives. Here's what he says. He says, God has made humans to reflect him. But if they do not commit themselves to him, they will not reflect him, but something else in creation. At the core of our beings, we are imaging creatures. It is not possible to be neutral on this issue. We either reflect the creator or something in creation. What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. You become like what you worship. What people revere, they resemble. So if you worship the Lord and you give him your full affection, you become like him. But if you worship something else and you give it your affection, you eventually somehow become like that thing. This idea is expressed in Psalm 115. Here's what it says. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You become like what you worship. What you revere is what you resemble. So let's consider some examples. Let's say when you worship money, what happens? You, you, you eventually begin to define yourself by your money. Um, you find yourself in life becoming perhaps more greedy or more hoarding, right? And, and, and ultimately, this can shape your relationships. So in your relationships, people aren't seen as people or as friends or family. Instead, they become debtors. They become creditors. They become investors. They become customers rather than human beings. When sex or pornography is your idol, you will increasingly objectify people. And quite possibly, a large number of people you care about will become sex objects to you. 
when power is your idol, consequences start to matter less and less and less, so long as what you do gets you to the goals that you ultimately want, because power is your God. And so people become competition, or collaborators, or pawns, or meat in terms of your relationships. When a relationship is your idol, a relationship with that special someone that's a significant other, but it becomes magnified to the point that you're deifying this person, you can become manipulative, you can become coercive, you can become codependent, or you can become super needy. You become like what you worship. What you revere, you resemble. Now, here's something that's fascinating. You might recall that many times in the Old Testament, God refers to his people, Israel, as a stiff-necked people. You familiar with that term? Stiff-necked was actually a term that was used to describe wild calves or untrained cows. So a stiff-necked cow was rebellious, it couldn't be led, and it would always resist being led. What's fascinating is that almost every time in the Old Testament when that term is used, with only one exception, almost every time that that term is used, it's used to describe the worshipers of the golden calf. It's used to describe idolaters. Those who worshiped the golden calf would become as stiff-necked as young calves. You become like what you worship. And so is it any wonder that Amos calls the women of Samaria the cows of Bashan. We shape our idols, and in the end, our idols shape us. Well, here's the third problem. Idols fail us. You know, the prophet Jeremiah had this to say about Israel's idolatry. Again, he's, he's, he's writing around this time. Here's what he says. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But me, my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So a cistern was this huge container that was placed underground, and it was made for holding water. Oftentimes they were made of stone, and the walls would have then been coated with lime uh, so that they didn't leak. And in an arid desert region where water was scarce, a cistern was the difference between life and death. Cisterns mattered. Sometimes, though, is that cisterns would, would crack, the limestone would crack, and then the water would, it wouldn't hold water anymore. The water would eventually seep out, and the cistern eventually became useless. And so, essentially, what they did was they would, they would take abandoned cisterns and use them for places of burial or for torture or for prison chambers. That's all they were essentially good for. What Jeremiah is saying is, is that idols are broken cisterns that cannot hold water. At first, they hold great promise, right? Because at first, they seem like they're going to provide the, the the soul, thirst-quenching, uh, life-giving water, value, meaning, worth, all of that. They promise to quench your soul's thirst. They seem exciting. They seem full. They seem bountiful. But in the end, what they ultimately do is they draw life from you. And so the thing about idols is, is they, they actually end up giving you diminishing returns. So the more and more and more you invest in an idol, the more and more and more they take. And as a matter of fact, you have to invest more and more just to get a little bit out of them. 
So idols take and take and take, but they never ultimately satisfy. Uh, I want to read to you from a commencement speech from from the late author, David Foster Wallace. And this was a very famous commencement speech that he wrote at Kenyon College in 2005. Now, this wasn't a Christian college. This wasn't a Christian speech, uh, but it has been quoted and touted again and again and again. And he reinforces this point that we're trying to make, both practically and poignantly. Here's what he says. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over things to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Here's the thing about idols, friends. Idols ultimately fail us. Scripture is very clear on this. Whenever we look at, to a created thing to give us the meaning and hope and happiness that only God can give, it will eventually break our hearts. Israel traded the fountain of living waters for leaky cisterns. And the thing about a fountain is it cannot hold, it's just made, uh, sorry, the thing about a fountain is that it doesn't just hold water. The thing about a fountain is that it ultimately just produces water. It's a never-ending stream. It is a bubbling brook of life. And this is the image of Yahweh compared to the idols of that day. And so now, let's go back to the book of Amos. What did the Lord say to Amos in their idolatry? I want to look at his gracious appeal in chapter 5. Reading at verse 4. Here's what it says. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Don't go to Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't, go to, don't journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them and Bethel will have no one to quench it. <clears throat> so the Lord is saying this. Listen, you can keep seeking your idols. And your idols are going to ruin you. Your idols, they are going to fail you. Ultimately, your, your idols are distancing you from the living God. Or, or, you can return to me. You can seek me and live. Don't seek your idols and die. Seek me and live. And here's the thing, friends, is that the Lord makes the same gracious appeal to each and every one of us this morning. He invites you and he invites me to seek him and live, to turn from our idols, to turn from our broken cisterns, and to turn to him, the fountain of living water. Well, how do we do that? Well, let me suggest two things that we need to do today, very practically. The first is this, is the first is we need to renounce our sins, and second, we need to replace them. So first of all, let me talk about renouncing our, our, our idols. Idols need to be renounced. What does that look like? Well, first of all, they need to be identified. Do you know what your idols are? Have you ever identified the idols in your life? Well, how do you do that? Well, Tim Keller, go back to him again, he suggests a number of ways. He says, well, one of the things you can do is just ask those people who are closest to you. Hands down, they'll probably know what your idols are. They'll be able to identify. They might just be too afraid to tell you, but they know what your idols are. Ask them. Second, look at your imagination. What, what is it that occupies your, occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? That's a good sign of your idols. Third, you might also look about how you spend your money. Because your money often flows effortlessly to the things that your heart loves the most. <clears throat> but the final test is, is the best one. And this is the one that works for most of us, for most people. 
He says, look at your most uncontrollable or painful emotions. In other words, what depresses you? What angers you? What is it that makes you the most anxious? Chances are that behind those emotions, you will find your idols. It was St. Augustine who said that our emotions are like the smoke from the fires rising from the altars of idolatry. You know, and I think about this, and I think about the time we're in right now, and, and, and this may in fact be one of the bright spots of sheltering in place during COVID-19. Because I guarantee you this, you've had some emotional outbursts during this time. Each and every one of us have. And it's helped us confront our idols as we've encountered some of our strongest emotions. Because when we've looked at our emotions, we said, well, what, is, what was that all about? What's this all about? And we realized that behind all of that, there's something that's really, really too important for you. And it really shouldn't be that important to you. And my prayer for us is that, that, that during this season, especially as we're moving into this season of relaunch, that we'll not only identify our idols, but we will actually be willing to deal with them. And my greatest fear is, is that as we move into relaunch and we go back to life as normal, whatever that looks like, whatever, if that's ever going to look the same again, but as we move into this season of relaunch, we'll forget everything that God has been teaching us during this time. My prayer is don't forget, remember, and be, be very intentional about asking the question, what am I clinging so strongly to? What are the idols that I have been seeking for my affection. And not forget what God has been showing us. But it's not enough to identify our idols. They need to be confessed before the Lord. See, the, see, the best thing about confession is actually the Lord actually welcomes it. We were made to confess. Confession should be something we do every single day. You know, oftentimes when we think of confession, we think is confession is just something that we do uh, when things are really, really, really bad, and then we need to confess it to the Lord. No, confession is something we do all the time. To confess means to come in agreement with. When we confess, we're agreeing with the Lord that something's wrong. When we confess, we're agreeing with the Lord that something's good. God invites us on a regular basis to make repentance and confession just part of our daily walk. That's how we grow. That's how we mature. It's not a bad thing. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He's just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful in His forgiveness when we confess. And so you have to identify your idols, but you actually have to confess your idols before the Lord. And then after that happens, our idols absolutely must be cast down. See, Amos told Israel, he said this, don't seek Bethel, don't seek Gilgal. In other words, you need to do something about your idols, right? You can't keep going back there. You can't keep going back to them. You have to make sure that they don't hold the same place in your hearts, or essentially you have to get rid of them. So the first step is to... Um, renounce or remove our idols. But here's the thing is, is you can't just renounce your idols. Ultimately, they have to be replaced. See, the problem is that, is that when we renounce an idol, what automatically happens is another idol just rises up to take its place. You know, or, or the idol that we had renounced before, eventually it kind of just, just grows back in our hearts. That's the thing John Calvin said. He says, listen, the human heart is an idol factory. Our heart is just cranking out idols all the time because we're broken this side of eternity. This side of eternity, we're still going to be turning to other things to replace God. And so that's why this idea of idolatry and renouncing idols and, and turning to the Lord, it's a lifelong journey. Let me be honest about that. And I hope you're honest about that as well. This is not something that's one and done and you'll never have that problem again. No, you will spend the rest of your life continuing to renounce your idols. 
We were made to worship. Nature abhors a vacuum. So you can't just renounce your idols. You need to replace them with something else. What do we replace our idols with? Well, the Lord said, he didn't just tell Israel, he didn't just say, stop going to Bethel or Gilgal. What did he say? He said, seek me and live. Stop going there, but seek me and live. So idols need to be replaced by God himself. And this isn't just like a general belief in God's existence. It's not just like a, a single prayer we said 20 years ago, okay? We, they need to be replaced by a continual living encounter with the Lord, with God himself. If you want to get rid of the idols in your life, you have to become a person who learns to seek the Lord every single day of your life. Seeking the Lord. So there's a story in John 4. And Jesus encountered uh, this Samaritan woman by the well. You're probably very familiar with the story. And this woman, like every one of us, had these counterfeit gods in her life. In her life these idols. She's had multiple husbands, right? As the story goes. And, and right now she's actually living with a man who isn't her husband. She's a serial divorcee and she looks to men to fulfill in her heart something that only God can give. So these men are trying, she's using them to satisfy the deepest longings of her soul. And Jesus very graciously explains to her that he can offer her something that nobody else can. That Jesus can actually offer her living, eternal water. And when she hears about it, she's like, I want that. I need that. And here's what Jesus says in John chapter 4, verse 13 to 14. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus does not offer us broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Jesus offers us a bubbling brook of eternal life-giving water that can never be quenched. Friends, Jesus is better than power. Jesus is better than fame or popularity. Jesus is better than human love. He is better than money. He is better than your stuff. He's better than any earthly pleasure or any earthly relationship that you can have with somebody else. Only Jesus satisfies the deepest longings of our hearts. We were created for God. We were created to know God, to love God, to worship God, to experience God. So my prayer is that you will seek him, seek him and live. Because here's the thing, all other idols, they, they leave us empty, they fail us. What we revere is what we resemble. We become like what we worship. Jesus invites us to seek him, to receive life, to receive restoration of the soul and of our lives. And let me ask you then this morning, what are the sacred cows in your life? And maybe today is the day for cow tipping. Maybe today is the day where you cast down your idols and you receive that life-giving presence of the Lord for you. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to give us life and life to the fullest. And we thank you that to do that, you gave up your life. And you surrendered it to the Father. You gave up your glory in order that we might receive the glory of the Father in this exchange. And we thank you for your forgiveness. And God, we just want to take a moment before you and confess our idols to you. So for those of you who are at home and you're praying with me, I just want to give you a moment to just talk to God about your idols.
why don't you just take a moment and say, God, I just want to confess that I've been turning to these broken cisterns for life and not to you. And then just ask him to forgive you. I'll give you a moment to do that. Give you a moment to do that. And I want to give you an opportunity to just receive from the Lord himself. This is a moment where you can just pray, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I want you. Jesus, would you come and fill my life today with your very own presence? Take a moment and pray that. King Jesus, you are greater than, you are better than, you are higher than. Forgive us for the sacred cows in our lives, these hollow, broken idols that cannot satisfy. We repent of them, we return to you, and we receive you with gladness. And thank you that you receive us with gladness. And thank you that you're for us and you love us and that you give yourself to us. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton, and you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.